Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Thank you, my girl. Thank you for introducing me once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75live.com. I am your host, Shannon Riley, bringing you the only broadcast here in Northeast Kansas dedicated to the works of the greatest playwright to have ever lived, Mr. William Shakespeare. Hey, I don't want to just talk to you about Shakespeare. I want to tell you about a great chance to see some. It's coming up right here in Northeast Kansas. If you're in the Topeka area, drive on out to Noto, that's North Topeka's Arts District. On May 29th, Lady Shakespeare, an all-female Shakespeare company, will be producing A Midsummer's Night Dream at the Red Bud Park Pavilion. That's it's at the north end of Noto. We'd love to see you all come out and support the ladies as they do this show. It's totally free, although if you could give a free will donation to the Lady Shakespeare Company to get started, I'm sure that would be welcomed. But we're really excited about it. We've been working on it for a long time. It's a great cast of ladies. It's only about an hour and a half long. We've pared it down, so come see A Midsummer's Night Dream, May 29th, at the Red Bud Pavilion in Topeka, Kansas, in the Noto District on the north end of Noto, starting at 3 p.m. Free show. We'd love to see you all there. All right, that's the first commercial. Second commercial I want to do is for me, and that is my podcast. If you enjoy my podcast, please let me know. You can drop me a line at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. And check out ShannonJRiley.com while you're sending me a message. There's some great short plays there, long plays, some short films. I'd love to have more people do them and read them and uh, get excited about them. So drop me a line. If there's anything you'd like to know, I'd love to answer your question for you. Now, if you've been following this podcast at all, and by the way, if you've missed any of the podcasts, you can also catch them at ShannonJRiley.com. They're all listed there. You can go back and listen to any of the uh, older podcasts as I started this program. And they're also being archived at KSEF Digital Radio, so you can pick them up there as well. And check out all the other great radio programs that KSEF has in digital interwebs land. Today, we're going to talk about The Merchant of Venice. It's the next play on our list. Actually, I'm going a little out of order. As I said last time, this would have been written before Henry V, but I wanted to do all of those histories together. And it was probably written around 1596. This is during a very prolific time in Shakespeare's life. When I started this podcast, I knew eventually I'd have to talk about this show. And it's a tough show to talk about. I can't tell you the number of times that people have said to me, isn't Shakespeare anti-Semitic? 
take a look at Merchant of Venice. My goodness, some of the stuff that's written in there. Well, yes, you got to remember my cardinal rule. And my cardinal rule about Shakespeare is remember when it was written. Shakespeare wasn't writing for us. He'd be amazed that 400 years later, anybody's even reading his stuff. No, Shakespeare was writing for a very specific audience. The Elizabethan and later Jacobean audiences of England. He was not writing with the idea that one day, 400 years later, we'd be in a class trying to defend his work. When you think of things, you have to think of them in the context of when they were said or done. That goes in anything. So, yes, there is some anti-Semitic issues with Merchant of Venice. So there was in Elizabethan England, or in the whole world for that matter, in the 1590s. Even in Venice, where this play is set, in Venice, Italy, Jews could not go out into the street unless they were wearing red hats. It was like they had to be recognized as Jews even from a distance. There was such a fear among Christians that there was something demonic or dangerous about the Jew and that they needed to make sure that they could keep the distance should they need to. There's references even that I found in Elizabethan England that referred to you could know a Jew by his scent, that there was an unholy smell that accompanied a Jew. Jews were banned in London by Henry II in 1260, yet there were Jews living in London. Probably not many. London was a city of thousands in the 1590s, and James Shapiro, an author who I really respect, he estimates there was less than 200 Jews that were living in, in England at the time. But they could not practice their faith publicly. They could not be out in public as Jews. They had to disguise themselves. Many Jews pretended to be converted Christians, and as a result, they did not practice their own religious holidays for fear of being caught and persecuted. There was a famous account of a doctor who actually treated Elizabeth I, who was later found to be a Jew. He was drawn and quartered, not necessarily for being a Jew, for crimes that they believed he was trying to poison Elizabeth I. He claimed his innocence and claimed that he loved Elizabeth I as much as he loved Christ, which made a lot of detractors laugh at him considering they knew he was a Jew. So, yes, there was a great deal of difficulty with the Jewish religion and the Jewish race in England in 1590 when this play was written. But I want to talk about this play because there's a lot of really wonderful stuff in this play and a lot of really ugly stuff in this play. And we have to come to terms with it. We have to meet it head on. First of all, when you think of this particular play, The Merchant of Venice, you think of the strong drama, the, the really painful dramatic elements of the story. Shakespeare saw it as a comedy. It was even listed among the comedies in his folio. The Elizabethans saw it as a comedy. And that's really hard for us to take. That's really hard for us to think about it that way. The character of Shylock, for instance, would have been played in a red fright wig, which is a teased wig that where the hair stands straight up and almost goes to a cone shape, and it is bright clownish red. He also would have been played probably with a hooked nose that was tied onto the actor's face through a simple string that ran around their head underneath the wig. He was played in a very exaggerated manner, very loud, very explosive. So to the Elizabethans, this idea of this Jew in the play is, is actually quite funny, not the tragic character of Shylock that we think of today. So we're going to talk about this play as I do the synopsis here, but before we do any of that, we always stop for a second for my boy to tell us about... And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. The Shakespeare quote of the week. And of course, it comes from Merchant of Venice because there's many. We are entering into some of Shakespeare's greatest works. And there are so many amazing things that he has said that some have become very much a part of our vernacular that we use every day. One of my favorite quotes from Merchant of Venice is, of course, The devil can cite scripture for his purpose. Act 1, Scene 3. 
That too is something that has, ex- has worked its way into common vernacular. Another common vernacular term is in a twinkling. That comes from Act 2, Scene 2. Or all that glitters is not gold. Act 2, Scene 7. And there's also, of course, the famous if you tickle a speech, which I'm going to talk about on the second half of the show when we go into how characters were depicted in the main themes of the show. But I'm going to start off with a quote, and this is actually my favorite quote because it gives us a real big clue about Shakespeare, who wrote Shakespeare, and what was going on during The Merchant of Venice. And it's the quote that opens the play, where we find the merchant Antonio rubbing his eyes and saying, Oh my, I know not why I am so sad. I know not why I am so sad is an odd way to start any comedy. Antonio is far from a funny character in this play. He is weary. He is sad. He has sent ships out that have not yet returned, and his fortune is on those ships. His good friend Bassanio is about to marry, and he's going to miss his friend. And this is one of the themes of the play, other than just the anti-Semitic thoughts or phrases in some of the scenes in the play. There's also this underlying current of what is a friend. Fraternal love is on full display here as well as what is a woman's place in the world, and that comes to play in the most powerful and wonderful character of Portia. I remember reading many years ago an article that talked about who was the smartest person in the Shakespeare's place. Who's the smartest man? Was it Prospero from The Tempest? Was it uh, Friar Lawrence from Romeo and Juliet? Which it wasn't. But they listed all of these people who could possibly be considered the smartest man in Shakespeare. But my favorite quote was at the very end of the article that said, But none of these men hold a candle to the brain of Portia from The Merchant of Venice. (laughs) And I fully agree with that. Portia is one of my favorite characters in all of Shakespeare. All right, so let's get started by talking, first of all, about the play itself. We start in Act 1 in Venice, of course. And we're with a merchant by the name of Antonio who's worried about his ships that they're long overdue in returning. Uh, His colleagues arrive to try to comfort him, and they are Bassanio, Graziano, and Lorenzo. And these three arrive, and Bassanio asks Antonio for a loan so that he can pursue the wealthy Portia who lives in Belmont and asks for her hand in marriage. Antonio can't afford to loan him all any money. All of his money is tied up in these ships that are away at sea. But instead, he sends Bassanio to borrow money on the security of Antonio's name and his expected shipments, and he sends him to go to Shylock to get the money. Meanwhile, at Belmont, Portia and her maid, Nerissa, discuss the suitors who have come in response to Portia's father's strange will. Now, her father had died saying that he wanted to see his daughter Portia married to a good man. But in order to find that good man, they had to pick the right casket that was laid out. There were three possible options, a gold casket, a silver casket, or a lead casket. And much to Portia's distress, everybody who's coming for her hand, she does not have any interest in. But she does think of Bassanio, and she's worried that Bassanio won't come in time to claim the right casket and take her away. Meanwhile, Bassanio approaches Shylock, a Jewish moneylender, about a loan. And Shylock, who holds a grudge against Antonio, says he doesn't really like Antonio. He doesn't like how he's made fun of his business practice or his anti-Semitic statements that he's made about him. Still, he does offer to loan Bassanio the money. But instead of charging interest, and this seems like at the time to Bassanio a bit of a joke, he asks that if the money is not paid back in full in three months, he will demand a pound of Antonio's flesh. Fine. The bond is agreed to because it's such a silly and ridiculous thing, and Bassanio prepares to leave for Belmont with his friend Grisanio. 
In Act 3, we learn that Shylock's servant, Lancelot, wishes to change masters and persuades Bassanio to please employ him. Shylock's daughter Jessica also longs to leave home. She wants to become married to a Christian and that Christian happens to be Antonio's friend Lorenzo. Before he departs to serve his new master, Lancelot takes a letter to Lorenzo that contains plans for how Lorenzo and Jessica can elope that night. When Shylock goes out, Jessica plans to escape, taking gold and jewels with her. And that following day, they'll board the boat with Bassanio and sail for Belmont. So, while Shylock rages at the loss of his daughter and his treasures that she has stolen, they're off on a boat on the way to Belmont and a new life. Now in Belmont, one of Portia's suitors, the Prince of Morocco, arrives. He chooses the gold casket and is certain that he will now win the hand of Portia in marriage, but he finds out that was the wrong casket to pick. Next is the Prince of Aragon, and he selects the silver casket. Again, it is wrong. But when Bassanio is announced, <laughs> Portia greets him happily, and particularly when he picks the lead casket, ensuring that the two of them may now be wed. A few days later, Shylock hears that his daughter Jessica has squandered all of her stolen wealth in Genoa, and he begins to rail against Christians, and he warns Antonio's friends that if his loan is not repaid in time, he will insist on that pound of flesh. Meanwhile, Bassanio, now married to Portia, and his friend Grisanio asks for Portia's maid Nerissa's hand to be his wife. Portia gives her ring to Bassanio and makes him promise to never give it to another. Now as Lorenzo and Jessica come to Belmont, news arrives that Antonio's ships have been lost at sea. He is now bankrupt, and they also are told that Shylock insists on the fulfillment of his bond, and he has Antonio arrested. Bassanio and Grisanio leave immediately to help Antonio. Portia and Neressa resolve to follow them afterwards in disguise as lawyers. Alright, well, so we're up to Act 4. I'm going to talk about Act 4 and Act 5 and give some analysis of the play on the other side. So let's take a short break and recognize our sponsors and the wonderful station of KSEF Digital Radio. And I'll see you in just a few moments. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75live.com. My name is Shannon Riley and again, very excited to be here today to talk to you about another one of Shakespeare's great works, The Merchant of Venice. As I've said many times before, I'm not a Shakespearean scholar. I don't claim to be a Shakespearean scholar. I'm just a man who really loves the work of William Shakespeare. I've read a lot about him. I read all of his works and it's my pleasure to spend a few times talking about William Shakespeare, and I appreciate Carice and KSE have given me a platform to do just that. We were talking about Merchant of Venice, and we were in the middle of the show, well, close to the middle. We're now up to Act 4. In Act 4, we go to the court in Venice, where, of course, Antonio is being held, where he is being asked to surrender a pound of his flesh to pay back the loan that he has lost. In this court, Shylock demands his pound of flesh. The Duke, presiding over the court, seeks legal advice from some great learned men who have just arrived. One of the lawyers is by the name of Balthazar, who is really Portia in disguise. Portia pleads for Shylock to have mercy on Antonio. After all, the quality of mercy is not strained, right? 
Bassanio even goes so far as to offer his wife's money, even though Portia, he doesn't know Portia's already standing right there in front of him, which would be more than enough to pay off the debt. But Shylock refuses to accept any of this. Antonio losing a pound of flesh is the only way he will be satisfied. So, finally it's up to Balthazar to save Antonio. He looks over the court record and says, yes indeed, according to this agreement, you do indeed own a pound of flesh from Antonio. You should be allowed to go and take it. But nowhere in this document does it say anything about blood. So you must take that pound of flesh without dropping a single drop of Antonio's blood. It saves Antonio's life. Shylock is devastated. He's ruined and he cannot collect his pound of flesh. Then things turn even worse for Shylock. Shylock is now in trouble for threatening the life of a Venetian. Shylock forfeits all of his goods, all of his worldly goods and possessions to Antonio and Bassinio. Antonio refuses his share of compensation, however, and asks that it be put in a trust for Lorenzo and Jessica. He also demands that Shylock become a Christian. Broken and in submission, Shylock leaves the court. Zinio and Graziano thank the lawyers, who demand payment themselves, and ask for the rings that they have in their possession to pay their legal fees. Bessinio and Graziano refuse until Antonio intervenes and makes them give the rings up to the lawyers. Act 5 finds us back in Belmont. Undisguised, Portia and Nerissa return home at night and find Lorenzo and Jessica enjoying the tranquility of Belmont. When her husbands arrive, Portia and Nerissa scold them for giving away their rings, pretending they had been given away to other women. Before long, they reveal themselves as the lawyers from the trial. Antonio receives news that his ships have been returned safely after all and were not lost at sea, and the play ends as the three couples prepare to celebrate their marriages. See? A happy ending for everyone but Shylock. So let's talk about Shylock, what we as a modern audiences think of Shylock's character. You know, it's treated much more dramatically today than it was in Shakespeare's time. It would have been performed very broadly, very brightly. The ending would have been seen as very hilarious. And actually, to an Elizabethan audience, the thought that Shylock had to convert to Christianity at the end really did him a favor. Because now, according to Elizabethan thinking, he's a Christian and can enter the gates of heaven, something that a Jew would not be able to do. So why did Shakespeare write this play? What is the important thing that Shakespeare's trying to get across? Well, I think there's three things here. First of all, it's the amazing ability Shakespeare has of seeing both sides of every argument. I'm going to start with Shylock. Yes, there's a lot of anti-Semitic statements that are in this play. And I saw a production not that long ago of The Merchant of Venice, but they didn't cut hardly any of them. And it was painful to listen to. The language that was used to describe the Jews that are in the play was absolutely atrocious. Shakespeare sees both sides of the matter, and he actually writes a very beautiful speech that Shylock gives in court, defending why he wants a pound of flesh. He says the pound of flesh will feed his revenge. He says Antonio, about Antonio, he hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated mine enemies. And what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not Jews eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If we are like you in the rest, we will resemble you in that. 
If a Jew wrongs a Christian, what's his humility? Revenge. But if a Christian wrongs a Jew, what should his suffrage be by the Christian example? My revenge. The villainy you teach me, I will execute, and I shall go hard. But I will better the instruction. Here, Shakespeare writes a character that really puts into place humanity of a people that are completely discounted by the Elizabethans. How they reacted to this speech, we do not know. But I know that modern audiences have hung on that speech as the point of the play, to point out the danger and the evil of anti-Semitism, of racism, of this ability to believe that one race is better than the other, simply because of their religion, the color of their skin, God they believe in. It is so difficult for us to really understand how Elizabethans responded to this play. It was obviously popular. It was, wasn't published until it was put into the folio, and it was done again and again and again. Many believe that Shakespeare was actually trying to mimic another play, The Jew of Malta, that was written by his, well, the man he most admired, probably, Christopher Marlowe. So we don't really know how they respond to it. But we do know that Shakespeare has to write a play that shows Jessica, his daughter, sneaking away in the dead of night to go off and become a Christian. There were quite a lot of houses of conversion in England at the time of the writing of this play. Jews, again, were forced to leave England, and yet if they stayed and went through this conversion, they could stay and continue their work. Also at this time in Elizabethan period, trade was opening up with other Jews in foreign lands, and there was a great deal of growth that Elizabethans had to go through in order to open up these markets. And so even Elizabethan England was starting to realize there's a whole big world out there that we have to contend with. But now I want to talk about another thing having nothing to do with Shylock and the question of anti-Semitism. It's this fraternal love that exists in William Shakespeare's play. It's this fraternal love between brothers. The strength that Antonio has, his feelings for Bassanio and vice versa. Bassanio would travel across the Mediterranean to save his dear friend Antonio from dying, and that Portia simply has to help to make sure that he can. So where is that from? Well, first of all, Elizabethans felt very differently about fraternal love. Men who were best friends would walk through the street holding hands. They would kiss each other goodbye. This wasn't necessarily a homosexual thing, I'm sure there were some that were, but this is much more just an open feeling of regard for each other. And that fraternal bond between people was very, very clear. You see this again and again in Shakespeare's play. The main character having a best friend, a best male friend, that almost goes everywhere they do, who helps them solve their problems, from Romeo and Juliet into Hamlet. So all of these fraternal relationships help drive the plot, but also illustrate this deep love and affection that people had for one another. It was a precarious time to live in. There was disease all the time. There was theft, there were robbers, there was no police. Parts of the world were like the Wild West. So this fraternal love that developed between men was a very real thing. But going back to a phrase that I said earlier that starts the play, Oh me, I know not why I am so sad. James Shapiro made a great point about the opening of this play. If it was written in 1596, as it is believed it was written around that time, this would have also been the year that Shakespeare lost his only son, Hamnet. We don't know what Hamnet died of. He could have been struck by a cart, he could have fallen from a tree, he could have gotten the plague. Although I think it's unlikely that it was a plague simply because they probably would have made notation of that in the church registry. 
Plague was a very serious thing. His appendix could have burst, who knows? But Hamnet dies at the age of 11. He dies at a time with the plague running rampant in England, or at least in London. And when Shakespeare is sent for, they find that his company, the Lord Chamberlain's men, have left London since the theatres are all closed and are performing through the countryside to make as much money as they can. So they had to find this company. When they find the company, they find out Shakespeare is not among them. He had refused to go on the trip. As I had mentioned in an earlier podcast, Shakespeare never left London during an outbreak of the plague. He stayed home. So they went back to London to get him. And by the time they found Shakespeare, it was too late to get him to Stratford-on-Avon. He missed his own son's funeral. After this moment, things change for Shakespeare. We start to see the men in his life die off. His father dies in 1601. Then he's followed by his brother Gilbert, his brother Richard, and his brother Edmund. His littlest brother, Edmund. They all die. Shakespeare is experiencing death on an intimate level now. And he's back in London, separated from his family, and he has to write for their livelihood. His father has fallen out of favor. He's not making a lot of money. Gloves aren't selling. He's been forced out of business a couple of times. So it's been Shakespeare who has been keeping the family afloat. He has to keep writing. He has to keep doing theater. And he's separated and away from the family he loves. It cannot have been easy to lose a son and to have to write a comedy in the very year it happened, which he did. Oh me, I know not why I am so sad, but I do know. And I think it's absolutely a telling point in Shakespeare's life and another sign that it was William Shakespeare who wrote the works of William Shakespeare. So finally, I'm going to return to the beginning and say again, Shakespeare's play, Merchant of Venice, had very serious anti-Semitic tones in it. Its audience would have wanted it. But at the same time, Shakespeare writes a sympathetic speech that to this day still stands up as a voice for the poor man who was destroyed by the end of this play. Early performances of the play are lost. We don't know how often it was performed or where, except we do know it was performed before King James in 1605 presumably by the King's Men, which would have meant William Shakespeare's team of players. It had a second performance a few days later, but there's no record of any further performances until the 17th century. It then was reopened, and for a time, it was the anti-Semitic blend that was the most important element in it. It pains me to say this, but after Kristallnacht in Germany in the 1930s, it was The Merchant of Venice that was played on the radio and performed around Germany on stages to further prosecute the idea that Jews were subhuman. They were not the same as the rest of us. Shylock's speech was even cut. So here you see Shakespeare's play being used as a propaganda tool against Jews. In fact, there was a series of articles that were written in 1785 by a man by the name of Richard Cumberland, who said that nothing that the character of Shylock had brought little less persecution upon Jews that scattered the sons of Abraham more than even the Inquisition itself. I think that's kind of harsh, but it is true that depictions of Jews in literature throughout the centuries bear a close imprint to Shylock with slight variations. There are up to the 20th century far more evil, malicious, odious, greedy characters of Jews than there are sympathetic interpretations. I don't know what Shakespeare intended with this play, other than it's listed as a comedy and he thought he wrote a funny, happy ending. I do know that this is a problem play in Shakespeare's canon. It's a play that is fraught with difficulty when produced today. But if you want to see a really good version, and I mean this, see the 2004 production with Al Pacino, the film. It's excellent. 
His performance is magnificent. Jeremy Irons is excellent in it as Antonio. It's really a beautiful film. And I think, at its heart, this is a beautiful play. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75live.com. I really appreciate it. Next week, we move on to another great feature because I think we are now approaching all of the best plays in Shakespeare's canon. But until then, remember, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.